In our exposition of First Peter, we've we've come now to chapter three. It's always good to turn another chapter. Maybe you're turning another page in your Bible. Um, and I had planned, so you can see uh, your sermon notes that are in your your bulletin there. I I planned on getting all the way through verse six. Um, I've got a nice outline right here. You could fill it in. And as I was as I was preparing my message this week, I ran into a problem. Uh, I ran into a problem. My first point got that got pretty big. And my second point was pretty big as well, and I didn't want to just neglect that third point. And so we're going to have a one-point sermon this morning, and uh, we'll pick up second point next week. And so that's just how it is. And um, you know, we're not in a hurry to get through the scriptures, but we will. We'll, we'll tack it on. I, also, in counseling with my wife, she said, "You know what? It's it's good in these sections of scripture that focus upon husbands and wives to kind of slow down." So. I've heard encouragement to thank for that. And we're just going to slow down and look at just verses 1 through 2. So I apologize. That's all my outline. I just have this one point. Um, but I trust you'll be able to follow things. To put everything in perspective, however, I want to read First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Peter writes, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way with someone weaker since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. My message this morning is entitled, Christ-like wives. Christ-like wives. So, yep, that's what my message says on my notes. I get my title from the very first words of the text. Peter begins, in the same way you wives. Now, there is some discussion at this point who it is that, that Peter is referring back to. Is he referring back to Jesus? in verses 21 through 25. In the same way that Jesus lived and suffered, leaving you an example, are you to follow that way? Or does it go back to chapter 2, verse 18? Servants, be submissive to your masters. Or does it go back to chapter 2, verse two, verse 18, says, servants, be submissive to your masters. 2, verse 13 says, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human institution. Which of those does it go back to? Well, in, in some ways, most commentators say it doesn't go back to Jesus. It goes back to our responsibility as citizens is to submit. Our responsibility as servants is to submit. And now the responsibility of wives is to submit. But I would in some sense say yes, but not so fast. Because Christ is the example to us as citizens. He's our example to us as servants. He must also be our example to us as wives as well. And so I think it's simple to say that in the same way, just like Jesus walked so you wives ought to walk because he was the example to servants in submission he was the example to citizens in submission and now he is the example to wives in submission as 
It's particularly even true here about uh, the suffering wife. Is what chapter 3, verse 1 speaks about. I almost titled my sermon this morning, The Suffering Wife. So you're talking about a wife who's, who's in a very difficult marriage situation. And in that situation, you really look to Jesus. He's the example. And so my message this morning is um, entitled, Christ-like wives, part one. And uh, my first point comes with my exhortation. It's this, wives, submit to your husbands. Submit to your husbands. You can see that right there in verse one. He says, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Now, your translation may say something like, wives, be subject to your own husbands, or it might say, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. In all these translations, the idea really is the same. The Greek word here is hupotasso. Hupo means under, and tasso means to line yourself up. So, literally, the idea here is to line yourself up under. Now, whenever this word is used, it's always used in the context of some authority in your life, which you're lining yourself up under. Chapter 2, verse 13, submit yourselves, hupotasso, to whom? To the government. Line yourself up under the governmental authorities. In chapter 2, verse 18, line yourself under your master's servants. And here, in the case of wives, line yourself up under your husbands. Now, Peter's counsel here is consistent with other New Testament teaching on this subject. In fact, whenever it addresses in the Scripture a husband to do this and a wife to do this in juxtaposition, the counsel is always the same to wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. It says, Husbands, love your wives. Paul repeated that Counsel again in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. He said, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives. So wives are to line themselves up under your husbands. So wives, be their help. Help your husbands. Be your husband's servant. Serve him. Follow your husband. Let your husband lead. And, and you line yourself up under him. Where, where he wants you to go, you go and you follow that way. That's what Peter is saying here to, to wives. Now, in our day and age, such an exhortation is often despised. Um, we live in an age where women's... We live, we live in an age of women's rights. We live in an age where women are demanding equal opportunity. Freedom for women. We live in an age in which women want their independence and they don't want to submit. They hear this word submission and it feels like um, they are being degraded or being placed in a position of inferiority. So to exhort women to submit to their husbands like Peter does and like I'm doing because the Bible does, it's often seen as old-fashioned to many people on our side. Well, that's what they did back then, but not today. Today we're... Equal rights and women not to submit. And it's uh, the egalitarian philosophy. Men and women are equal in roles and everything. Well, I'm just telling you, the Bible's clear on this. Wives are placed themselves under their husband's authority and leadership. People may call it old-fashioned, but I call it biblical. I call it the tried and true wisdom of the Bible is what I call it. I call it the path to great blessing, is what I call it. You know, one of the things that we teach our children, especially when they are young, 
is um, the benefits and blessings that come from obeying mommy and daddy. Now, I've, I've not prompted her, but Stephanie, if you obey mommy and daddy, what are you going to be? What she say, Greg? Happy and safe. That's exactly what we teach our kids. You obey mommy and daddy and you will be happy and you will be safe. See, because when children disobey their parents, it leads a child down a path of danger. They, they move outside of the sphere of the protection of their parents. And they think they're going to be happy out there. But the path of disobedience doesn't lead to happiness. Listen, the happiest children that I know are those who are walking in submission under their parents. They are happy and they are safe. And so likewise, same as here with wives, the happy and safe place to be is for wives to submit to their husbands. Now, before we proceed, I want to, do, I want to flush out a few things of what submission means because some people, when they hear this, would balk at it and say, no, I, I don't want that. And, and some, they resist it because they have a false notion of what it is. And some resist it because they have a true notion, but some resist it because they have a false notion. But I just want to clear up what submission means. First of all, submission deals with roles and not abilities. It deals with roles and not equality. Right? A wife's submission to her husband doesn't mean that she's in any way inferior to her husband. It just doesn't. In fact, in many marriages that I have witnessed, wives are more intelligent than their husbands. And in many ways, they are their superior. And I would say in all marriages, there are areas in which the wife has more wisdom than a husband does. And you just need to search down and say, okay, now, in this marriage, how is the wife gifted? How is the husband gifted? And in every single marriage in this room, I'm sure that there are wives who are more gifted than their husband in one area or another. Maybe it has to do with dealing with finances. Maybe it has to do with um, her mechanical inclination. That's how family we think about men as engineers, right? And women as... There may be a time when a a wife is more mechanically inclined than her husband. I uh, had a good example of this yesterday. We <laughs> we have our van. <laughs> we have a van, and Avon um, Avon parked it recently up against a snowbank and pulled it off. And it kind of it's a plastic part of the bumper, and it kind of kind of tore on down. And um, so there's this big crack in the in the bumper. And um, so I, I did the husbandly thing, and I I basically propped it up with a boot all. Uh, all week long, and so I was kind of sitting with the boot so it kind of wouldn't go out. And, and figure we didn't use the van until yesterday. I was out of town, and the van had to use the van, and she had to use it right now. And and she did what I couldn't do. She figured out, oh, how can I fix this thing? And so she took a bungee cord and kind of wrapped it around the thing and put it on, and then drove away. Otherwise, it would have like cracked off. And and so I congratulated her when I came home Saturday evening about a a job well done in uh, that area of fixing our bumper a little bit. So I need to figure out how to get a screw in there tomorrow on my day off. I think I'll do that, but. She's not more mechanically inclined in, in most things, but in that case, she was, and that was really good. Perhaps a, a wife is, has more insight into discerning the character of others within a marriage. So, uh, submission doesn't mean that a wife is inferior to her husband. It doesn't mean that he is more able than she is. Rather, it means that he simply has been placed at the role of a leader. He has roles and not abilities. 
Because in Christ, we all are, are equal in worth and value. God treasures us in that way. It says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for all one in Christ. Now, he's not talking about roles there, he's talking about worth and value. And in Christ Jesus, we're all the same, we're all equal. We are, as it says at the end of 1 Peter 3, verse 7, fellow heirs of the grace of life. That's who husbands and wives are, fellow heirs. But submission does have to do with roles. One leads and one follows. My second observation here is that um, submission is not demeaning to a wife. Many people think it is. They think, oh, that's so demeaning for women to put them in a role of submission, but it's not. And if you contend that it is, you need to deal with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, in which Christ is in a position of submission. It says there, that Christ is the head of every man. Right? That means that Christ is our authority. We line ourselves up under Jesus. The man is the head of a woman. The man is in a position ahead of authority and the, the woman lines herself up under the man. And then catch this last phrase. And God is the head of Christ. God is the authority, has the role of authority in the relationship with the Trinity. That Jesus puts Himself under the Father. Why do you think it is so often through the Gospels that Jesus always says, I've come to do Your will. I've come to do Your will. It's always the Father's initiative. It was the Father who sent the Son. It wasn't the Son who came up with the idea and said, I'll go. It was the Father who said, Jesus, will you go? And He said in His eternal submission to His Father, absolutely, I want to submit to You and I will go. So if you think submission is a demeaning thing, then you have problems with your doctrine of the Trinity because all of a sudden you've got a member of the Trinity that is uh, more demeaned than the other and that's absurd all are equally God all persons of the Trinity equally demanding of our worship worthy of our worship I mean and if anything even submission is not a demeaning thing if anything uh, submission is an honoring thing it says in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7 that a husband rightly walking with the Lord is to show her honor. Is to lift her up. The husband is to take his wife and, and place her in a place of uh, preciousness. If you have a uh, expensive vase or vase in your home, you know what? It's not as rugged as uh, some of the other implements that you use. Well, so what do you do? You put it in a precious, honorable place. Now, is a, is a vase... Is that demeaned in being put up in a place of honor and high high place? It's not. It's a place of beauty. It's a place of honor. And that's where women are. They submit themselves to show forth their flowers to serve their husbands. Submission deals with roles, not abilities. Submission isn't demeaning wife. My third observation about submission. Submission does carry with it the idea of obedience. Submission does carry with it the idea of obedience. But submission is different than obedience. Obedience is something that you can force upon another. Obedience is something that can be forced upon you. For instance, God calls children to obey their parents. And if they don't obey, God calls parents 
to force them to obey. He does. He's got two means by which to do that. The rod and the reproof. Physical and verbal. That's the same. Train them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Physical discipline, a verbal discipline. That's what God uses. And parents, for your kids, you need to make sure that they are obeying you. They need to learn to obey when they're small so that when they get older, they'll turn sweet. In fact, it was very interesting. We um, had a time this, this past week. I was in my office and I came back in and Yvonne was reading with the kids and, and David was on the baby monitor. He was just crying and crying and crying. He, he was in bed. right? And, and we put him down for a nap. But he didn't want to go for a nap. And uh, we knew that he was tired and we said it's time for him to go to a nap. And Yvonne said that he cried for a long time. A long time. I'll, just, I'll say a long time is what I'll say. And I came in and I just affirmed Yvonne in that and I said, kids, kids, what you got to do? Win the battle when they're small. Right? Shape the cement when it's wet. Because once it hardens, you can't change it. And I said, guys, we're going to win this battle with David today. We're going to make sure that he goes to bed and goes to sleep. And we're going to last longer than he lasts. We have control of the food, right? We can last longer than you have. And we won the battle. That's obedience. You can force obedience. But listen, you cannot force submission. Husbands, you do not have the prerogative to take 1 Peter chapter 3 and say, Wife, you wife, submit to me. If it said obey your husband, you could do that. But it says submit. You can't do that. In fact, even that is is forced here, is demonstrated. I I get that from the the voice of the Greek language. The Greek language has three voices, okay? Bear with me a little bit. But you have the active voice, you have the middle voice, and you have the passive voice. The active voice is um, like our active voice in English. The boy hit the ball. The boy did something to something else. He's being active in that. The passive voice is just like our, our English. The boy was hit by the ball. Right? But this middle, we don't really have a, um, an equivalent in our English. It's a little bit like the reflexive. We're doing it ourselves. But it's more that you yourself participate in the action. So the middle voice would be something more like this. The boy by himself participated and hit the ball. And this word here, wives, be submissive to your husbands. Guess which voice that's in? It's in the middle voice. So the exhortation comes out, wives, be submissive of your own volition, of your own will, voluntarily, freely, willingly, submit yourself to your husband and obey your husband. Right? Not because a pastor told you, not because it's being strong-armed into that, but do so because you of your desire desire to do that. Wives, be submissive for yourselves to your own husband. So obedience is there, okay? But it's a little bit different than the Greek word hupakuo, which means you got to obey. Now, so wives, I just simply say this. When your husband instructs you to do something, do it. Unless, of course, he's calling you to sin. <clears throat> he's calling you to sin, obey God and not man. If he's not calling you to sin, obey him. Because that's what submission is. Fourthly, my fourth observation is submission 
does not mean that a wife doesn't input into her husband's decision-making process or make an appeal to disobey or make an appeal for him to change his mind. I'm sorry, we do that with our kids. Even our kids need to obey us. There are times when we tell them to do something and they respectfully ask us a question and say, is this really the case or do you really want me to do this? And we consider it. We say, you know what, you're right. You've got a good argument. We won't make you do that. <clears throat> Wives, you can do that and still submit to your husband. As she makes decisions, maybe she tells you something to do and you say, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that's the wisest thing to do. Go back to your husband and talk to your husband and reason it through. Inform your husband of your perspective in the matter of marriage in the home. Right? Seek to persuade him. Influence him. Use your intelligence. Because right? I already said that many of your wives are more intelligent than your husband. Right? Use your intelligence. Your independent thought. And seek to persuade him to your, your perspective. But in the end, if he's not persuaded, he still tells you something the submissive wife will obey. But doesn't mean that she doesn't have opportunity for input because she does. Fifth observation. Submission doesn't remove all authority and responsibility from the wife. In fact, the wise husband will delegate many things to his wife. Delegate many areas of authority to his wife. Will understand his own giftedness, will understand her giftedness, and will seek to give her what she does well. You don't want to micromanage everything, men. If your wife is better at managing the food in the home, let her manage the food. Give her sovereignty over the food. If your wife is in charge of keeping the tracking of the finances of the home, let her track those. Let her help you in that. She's in charge of keeping up some maintenance tasks required. Whatever that is. Garbage, cleaning, decorating, mowing the lawn. Whatever. If she's good about that, she likes it. I know some wives love mowing the lawn. But let her do that. Wonderful. You don't have to do that. Or if you have kids, it's even better. But some of these things, right? Delegate your authority. And feel free to encourage her to exert her authorities in those areas. It's your delegation to her. She has lots of responsibility and lots of authority. All right? But it should be a husband delegating that to her. Here's my, my sixth observation. Submission means that you acknowledge the authority of your husband and follow his lead. And this is really what hupotasso means. Basically, you acknowledge the authority, and you submit to that, and you follow his lead. That's what submission is. It, submission is a lot of attitude. It's a, it's a lot of, you know what, I realize my husband's in charge, and he's, he's given this to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. But, oh, you know, maybe, what about this? You know, maybe bring it back to your husband and talk about it. And uh, think about it. Large decisions, really speak about it. Let your husband make the final decision. Follow his lead. So that's, that's what submission is. Um, now still having said these things, having clarified submission, there are some reasons why women still resist this command. I sought to put it in as clear a context as I could. And first of all, I think is because there's not really any of us who really like to be in a position of submission. Um, in certain circumstances, okay, but I just say that um, submission doesn't always come naturally. It doesn't. A lot of times you want to resist authority. Um, and so also with wives, you want to resist the authority. That's how God has made it. In fact, that was a consequence of the fall. Your desire will be for your husband, and it's kind of a desire to rule over you. Because that's the same context about uh, Cain and Abel. 
this desire, sin is going to be to rule over you. You're going to have a desire to rule over your, your husband. It's a part of the fall. It doesn't come naturally for us. Let me ask, how many of you wives have ever struggled with submitting your husband? Okay. All right, good. I think most everyone. It's hard. But another reason why women resist this command is because of their own experience. Many women find themselves in a situation where, quite frankly, it's very difficult to submit to their husband. And quite frankly, he's not worthy of being followed See, it's one thing to uh, have a wife. It's one thing for wives to submit to husbands when he's a great leader, when he loves you and seeks your good as your ultimate priority, when he cherishes you and when he nourishes you and when he honors you and when he makes great effort to serve you as every good leader does, right? The greatest leader among you, Jesus said, should be your slave. Your husband is your slave and serves you. When your husband's decisions aren't motivated by his own interests, but he sets your interests above his own interests. He considers you more important than himself in all of his decision-making processes. When he's willing to help you in your weaknesses, when he's willing to help you bear your burdens. In those circumstances, submission's easier. I didn't say it's easy. I said it's easier because when those things are true of a husband, the wives often will have little difficulty submitting their husbands. And so, all right, I've been addressing the wives. Guys, here's your time, okay? There's one time I'm going to address you. It's right here. Be that kind of husband, guys. Be that kind of husband to whom it makes your wife willingly and desires to submit to you because you're a good leader, because you love her, Ephesians 5. Because you cherish her like you cherish your own body. Because you lift her high and honor her. Because you're always seen around the house, wherever you are, serving her and helping her and easing her load. Because you're bearing her burdens. Because you're, you're, you're crying with her. You're weeping with those who re- weep. And you're rejoicing with her. And you're making life enjoyable for her. And in humility, you're, you're helping her. Guys, I just say, be that kind of man. So you don't have to force your wife to submit. Your wife says, uh, yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll submit to him for sure. And oftentimes, the, uh, the wife that's having a difficult time submitting isn't so much an indictment on the wife as his indictment on the husband for not doing his part. But we'll get to that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. But... Today, we're talking about wives. And so back to you wives. Maybe you're in a situation where your husband doesn't love you. Maybe you're in a situation where your husband just doesn't care about your needs and your wants. Maybe you're in a situation where your husband doesn't honor you, but degrades you with his speak, always tearing you down. Maybe your husband has no desire to serve, but he comes home and he props himself in a lazy chair and says, when's dinner, honey? Let's you fix everything and do everything. Maybe your husband is self-centered in all of his decisions, right? He only makes his decisions based around himself rather than considering others more important than himself. Maybe he's like the Pharisees of old, laying huge burdens on you, but unwilling even so as to raise a finger to help you. Well, if this is your situation, I, I say this, please know that my exhortation still stands. 
Even if that's your situation, I say, wives, submit to your husbands. Peter knew full well there are people in this circumstance. In fact, that's what he does. Look at the last half of verse 1. He says, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. You see what, what Peter is doing? He's saying, even if they're disobedient to the word, you still submit. It means husbands have heard the word because you can't be disobedient to something you haven't heard. They've heard the word. They've heard the gospel. and They've rejected the gospel. They don't believe in God. They'll live their own way. But it may even be worse than that. This word here translated that even if they're disobedient to the word, I know some say it's... Um, disbelieving or they don't believe. The word here is apetheo, which means that they are um, dispersuaded. They are um, they are disobedient. It's kind of really what it means. So it's, it's more than just they're, they're unbelieving. It means they're dispersuaded and they have a disposition the other way that is anti-God. There's maybe even an active rebelliousness against the Lord and these men. They haven't heeded the call to love their wives their own bodies. They haven't died to themselves. They aren't sensitive to your needs. Maybe they look at you as a slave rather than a wife. In that case, Peter is still calling you to submit. Now, here I just want to address briefly the issue of abuse. You know, if you're being abused in the home, wives, that's another matter. There's laws against that. And if you need help in abuse, if you ever feel in danger of your husband, certainly call the police. Um, absolutely. Um, but if there's no physical danger... Um, submit to him. Maybe the verbal abuse is intense and strong. If that's the case, come talk to me or come talk to Gordy or other godly people that you know and just say, hey, help me with this. So this is this is really bad. I mean, so the level of abuse can reach to a point where, um, you know, it's, it's unlawful. But but listen, if, if it's just a matter of being disobedient, being a matter of just persuading, you know, disobedient, he just goes and he looks at his pornography. Right? Or disobedient, he just goes, he does, does his own thing. Disobedient, he just you know, is not caring about you at all. Um, you know, filling his mind with mush and going out with the guys and come back home drunk. You know, if it's if it's not affecting you physically, I, I think what Peter's saying here is still submit to them even if they are disobedient to the word. And, and Peter's comments, by the way, are totally in line with the whole context. I mean, chapter two, verse thirteen, right? Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, right? Be good citizens of the country, right? Submitting to your authorities. So that, chapter 2, verse 12, if you do well and you have excellent behavior among the Gentiles, even if they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in the day of visitation. Still, you need to obey them. Even if you're doing good and they're slandering you, you still need to submit to your governmental authorities. And so likewise, servants... Be submissive to your masters. Whether you have a good master or you have an unreasonable master, still submit to them. And then he spends two verses talking about the unreasonable master case. And here Peter spends verse two and verse verse one and verse two talking about the unreasonable husband case, a husband who is disobedient to the word. <clears throat> and this is the message of First Peter, isn't it? I mean, we, we've said suffer now, glory later. We can expand that a little bit. You know, sufferings for now, but live righteously now because you know there's going to be glory later. 
I was talking with uh, Frank Yonke. He's a pastor at Kishwaukee Bible Church. And uh, he's been thinking about First Peter. And he handed me this card, this I think, two weeks ago. He said, here's, here's what I think First Peter is about. He says, this is a First Peter. Holiness in him when it's hard for the gospel and the glory of God. Holiness in him when it's hard for the gospel and the glory of God. You know, and I, I think this is it. I think he nailed it perfectly. <clears throat> because Peter counsels us when it's hard, it's precisely then that you need to especially continue to walk in holiness because of the implication of the gospel and because of the implication of the glory of God. In fact, that's what Peter says. The purpose for wives submitting themselves to their husband is, has everything to do with evangelism has everything to do with what's called lifestyle evangelism. It says there at the end of verse 1, that they may be won without a word by the behavior of the wise. That they may be won. That means that they may be converted. That they may embrace Christ without a word. <clears throat> In other words, Peter's exhorting the wives here to live out your Christianity before your husband in such a way that they might see your faith. That your husband might <clears throat> see your trust in the Lord above all things, even as you submit to an ungodly, disobedient husband. Let your life be a living parable to him. Let your light shine before him so that he may see your good works and glorify God. Listen, it's your actions that are going to win him and not your words. And I say this, never underestimate the power of example. Never underestimate the power of example. Um, yesterday, I mentioned I was out of town. I, I went to my alma mater, Knox College, in Galesburg, Illinois. <clears throat> yes, it was founded 100 and, Christa, what, 170 years ago, I think. Um, 1837, I saw the founded established 1837. So I've been here a long time. It's founded Presbyterian, John Knox, great Scottish Presbyterian preacher. But over the years, it has, has drifted, obviously. And I've told you before that when I went to college, I knew five kids who went to church on a consistent basis. A school of a thousand. Um, and that is, that is a mere external reflection of what the reality was going on in the hearts of many people. The time when I was <coughs> at Knox, I, you know, I did know a lot theologically. Hardly at all. In fact, that's why I went to seminary, because I didn't. But God protected me, and I had somewhat of a righteous reputation. And I went down to Knox College yesterday because my my basketball coach, who, who coached me, has been coaching there, I think, for 24 years. And just now is his last game on Saturday. And um, so I told him, I said, I wouldn't miss this day for the world, coach, because I, I love the man. He's a, uh, he's a good guy. He's not a Christian. Not a Christian. In fact, when I, I walked into the gym, <clears throat> saw him, he was talking with somebody, saw me come in and said, oh, hi, Steve, how are you doing? And he said, oh, here's Steve Brandon, told some things about it. And he said, yeah, Steve's faith was tested at Knox College, wasn't it, Steve? That was his concept. I mean, you know, he, he was antagonistic to me sometimes about faith, trying to persuade me away. I mean, that's kind of what he used his job as. He's a wicked guy. He's a nice guy, right? And um, I, I replied to him. I said, yes, my faith was tested at Knox College, and it was found true. Praise the Lord. He coached for 24 years. <clears throat> There's another coach before him who coached for 24 years, and they overlapped for about 10 years or so. And uh, this man then became the athletic director, and I spent some time with this man. 
And uh, he, he used to be involved in church. I'm not even sure he's involved in church, but a real nice guy. Um, I, I don't know whether he's a, he's a Christian or not, <clears throat> but a real nice guy. But he came up to me, Steve Brandon, you know, he, he chased me down. He took me, and he's one of those guys that get about like this far from your face. I always feel like, oh, okay, I'll stand like this. And he said, please tell me that you still love Jesus. That's what his comment was to me. And so I told him about my life and just what God had done. I went to seminary pastoring a church. He was shocked that I was pastoring a church. You know, and not, not shocked in the, in the sense that it was um, not consistent with my character. He just didn't know. You know, because I haven't talked to him for a, a long time, at least in the past 10 years or so. And uh, he was really encouraged by that. But, but I'm just thinking, you know what? I, I didn't have a lot of spiritual conversations with this guy. Um, even my basketball coach, I didn't have a lot of in-depth spiritual evangelistic conversations. But what was the issue? The issue was my faith. Wow. By the examples I walked. You know, I was on campus. I didn't, didn't drink. I was, was righteous. You know, I, I sought to work hard. I obeyed my, my coaches. I did so with a delight and happiness, joy in my face. I wasn't using profanity like everybody. I just worked different. And, and my example made a profound effect upon these guys. That that's the thing they thought about. And so why is if you're in the situation where <clears throat> where you're with an unbelieving husband, never underestimate the power of your behavior. Now, in my case, it didn't, didn't convert my basketball coach. I, mean, I, I think he's as hardened today as he's hardened forever. In fact, in the process of the game, I mean, he took the name of the Lord God in vain, clearly. And um, just angry, yelling at the officials. Um, I didn't persuade him in any way, but it had its effect. And Peter says that your effect, your life, wives, will have an effect. He says there, the kind of behavior that has an effect is a chaste and respectful behavior. Chaste simply means pure, clean, free from defilement. It's the wife who's setting her mind upon the things above. <clears throat> it's a wife who's not saying wrong things. It's a wife who's encouraging and building up. And just lives a pure life. Not involved in the gutter of human existence. It's a chaste life. Respectful literally means fearful. And I think that it means your reference to the Lord. Walking in, in the fear of the Lord. Right? Everything that this wife does is, is, is thought through the process of that there's a, a holy God looking down upon her and she fears this Lord and desires to please Him in, in every way. So she walks purely upon earth and she walks purely because she's respecting her, her Lord. Consider the power of this behavior. This behavior is powerful enough to convict the heart of an unbelieving man and lead him to Christ without a word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And yet in this case, faith comes by observing example of a wife living righteously before her husband. Now, obviously, I said before, this husband has heard the Word. You know, it is there, but she can win him without a word. And I say, wives, regardless of whether you're married or not, Wives, that doesn't make sense, does it? Women, regardless of whether you're married or not, girls, we're preparing to be married, pursue chastity, pursue purity, pursue a fear of the Lord. Pursue these things. It's powerful. If it's powerful enough to convert an unsaved husband, certainly it is worthy of walking in that pattern, right? All right, well, let's get back here to the example of the case of living with a disobedient husband. I don't think it's that you never can talk to your husband about the gospel at all. 
I, I don't think that's there. Um, but I do think that the amount that you're talking to a husband about the gospel, it doesn't have to be a lot, you know. Don't nag. Don't nag about the gospel. Don't constantly talk about it. But, you know, if your husband knows about it, that's good enough. And then continue to walk focus here. But when questions come up, like for instance, you go to church, your husband doesn't, questions come up, talk to him about church, talk to him about the gospel, talk to him about things you're reading. Sure, fine. But, but you don't have to like major on that and pound it in because Peter's counsel is to live the gospel for your husband because your actions will speak far louder than your words will. It's your behavior that's going to have more effect to convert your husband than your words ever will. But words are okay. <clears throat> I ran across the story this week of Alice and John Cross who lived in the 1800s. Alice had come to faith in Christ, but her husband John had not. Rather, he had continued in his own ways. And she determined to obey the Lord and go worship with the church rather than sit at home with her husband. And if she left the home, she would call out to her husband. I'm not sure if this was every time. Maybe, maybe not. But at least sometimes this happened. She was at the door with her her hat in her hand. And she says, John Cross, will you go to heaven with me? He says, if not, I'm not willing to go to hell with you. Shut the door and went to worship. Or she go to heaven. Not willing to follow the path of her husband. Her husband clearly knew that. Well, eventually John yielded to Christ. And together became mighty warriors for Jesus. In fact, one of the first things that John did... He installed a pulpit in the largest room in his house. He lived in the farming community someplace, and you know, probably like a flock Bible study, something like that. They went, and uh, the great, uh, the great preacher William Grimshaw often preached in their home. Just made the home conducive to the gospel, and they served the Lord mightily. And we don't know the full story, but I suspect that it was much more than a brief comment at the end of the door that converted her husband. I suspect it had much more to do with the life that she led that converted her husband. Another historical example of this comes in the life of Monica, the great mother, the, the mother of the great church father Augustine. Now, the, the story's often been told about how God was faithful to answer Monica's prayers required in the life of her wayward son. You know, Augustine was involved sexually in sin and immoral and out there, and Monica prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and God was gracious and opened Augustine's eyes. That story's been told often. But less often has been the story told of her conduct before her pagan husband, Patricius, who was Augustine's father. In Augustine's confessions, he wrote, he thanked the Lord. Actually, his confessions is a giant prayer to God. And he prayed about the situation by his mother. He, He said, She served her husband and her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. What a perfect perfect picture that is. There's something beautiful about a woman submitting to her husband, even when things are difficult. Speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Wayne Grudem pulls this out well in his commentary when he speaks about a wife's behavior and how a husband will react with that. He says, The attractiveness of a wife's submissive behavior, even to an unbelieving husband, suggests that God has inscribed the rightness and beauty of role distinctions in marriage on the hearts of all mankind. The unbelieving husband sees this behavior 
and deep within perceives the beauty of it. Within his heart, there's a witness. This is right. This is how God intended men and women to relate as husband and wife. And he concludes, therefore, that the gospel which his wife believes must be true as well. In other words, God has inscribed upon our hearts the way which he has created the world. When God created Adam and Eve, the prototype for all marriages, he created Adam first, and he created Eve as a helper. It's just how it is. Adam leads. He names the animals. He has the duties to tend and serve the garden. And she helps him in that process. And when a wife is fulfilling her role, a husband, even an unbelieving husband, is led because of the way that God has made us internally to see how God's ways are indeed best. That's what Wayne Grudem is saying. I think he's exactly right. Now, let me come back here again and just say that it's a hard thing for a wife to do. I mean, you can think about the situation in which your husband is disobedient, but there are areas in all of your relationships where your husband, you know, maybe isn't failing in all of these, maybe he isn't rank unbeliever, but maybe, you know what, he's not loving you as much as he ought to right now. Maybe he's not serving you as much as he ought to right now. You know, my message today can find application in all you wives. So you think about, you know, whether you're married even to a believer and just dealing with how, how do I deal with my husband who's being disobedient in this area right now or not doing everything he's supposed to do and I'd say it's hard it's a hard deal I know that Yvonne has been talking about without a word that's really hard without a word that's really hard see because lots of people can play that part of hypocrite at church it's easy one thing to put on a tie you come you look real nice here at church you do your thing and uh, from outward appearances nobody would have any idea that anything's wrong with the soul Because it's easy to hide at church. It's not easy to hide at home. In fact, it's downright impossible to hide at home. You can't play the hypocrite at home. What you profess with your mouth is being tested every moment of the day. In fact, I remember being in college and professing a Christian and just doing something. And I remember the guy who's totally atheistic said to me, Oh, is that how Christians are supposed to act? You know, it's not like I had conversations all the time, but, but, but I'd made my claim that I'm standing on Christ. And then he, you know, I sinned and he messed up. And he, oh, is that how I'm supposed to act? And husbands, unbelieving husbands, oh, is that the way a Christian wife is supposed to act? You know, and you can get it and you get it hard. And it is hard to live like this in a Christian home. But the unbelieving husband will see whether your faith is really true or not. Because listen, when he's being unreasonable with you, wives... He knows he's being unreasonable with you. And when he sees you being submissive to him, even when it's difficult, and because you fear God and because you have this higher calling, listen, they'll have an opportunity to see the genuineness of your faith. And they'll see it when it's tested. His observations may well lead you to, tell me this hope that's within you. Chapter 3, verse 15, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's within you. And maybe your husband will ask you, how is it you still submit to me even when I'm being unreasonable to you? If God so leads him to that brokenness. And it may be the case that God will use your words at that moment when he asks to convert his soul. And I'm under no delusion this is an easy thing. In fact, as I preach this, 
I, I don't even think that I can understand how difficult it is. I, I'm not saying that I can. Not in any sense. I, you know, there's one thing about experiencing trouble that when you experience it, you can sympathize with others because you've been there. And I've not been there, okay? I grew up in a wonderful home. My wife grew up in a wonderful home. We have a wonderful home. So I, I can't even... I mean, I can try to imagine it, but I, I'm not even saying that I understand the difficulty. Because I'm just telling you, so I've counseled with women in this situation. I've seen firsthand of how difficult this is in their life. The suffering is incredible. And the suffering may well go on for years and years and years and years and years. I've seen women in this situation want to die so that the pain can be removed. I've seen women give up with no hope in sight. Say, I'm going to bag this. I'm going to seek my happiness some other place. I remember talking with one woman who was dealing with a situation. She said, without question, this has been the hardest thing I've ever dealt with in my entire life. And so my counsel to you is now I want to, not so much the wives in those situations, I want to counsel to you, maybe other, other wives who are rubbing shoulders with wives in these situations. My counsel is to you, be gracious and patient and kind and loving and sympathetic with those in these circumstances. Don't be like Job's friends who were highly critical of a man suffering immensely. It's one thing to be highly critical of somebody one day, but if they're suffering, it's not the day to be highly critical of people. A woman who's trying to be Christ-like in a home where a husband is disobedient to the Word is suffering, and I would contend, in some cases, every bit as much as Job. And such women don't need to be told, well, if you're just a little bit more obedient, are you being chaste and respectful? Maybe your husband will come along and believe. Come on, get your act together. What kind of woman are you, right? What kind of wife are you? Come on. That's not what she needs. She needs a shoulder to cry on. That's what she needs. And what she needs to hear is the gospel. She needs to hear the suffering of Christ. He's the example of her suffering. Chapter 1, verse 22. He committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he didn't revile in return, but he kept kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, that we should consider Him who endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that we might not grow weary and lose heart. Right? Look to the example of Christ. He resisted to the point of shedding blood, which none of us have. And consider Him. Look at, look at Christ. See how He suffered. And realize His suffering was for her. The suffering woman needs to hear about Christ bearing her sin upon His shoulders. She needs to be told, right? This burden you have with your unsaved, disobedient husband is is large. It's great. But believe it or not, your burden of sin was greater. And and he's taken that off your shoulders, hasn't he? If he's taking your burden of sin off your shoulders, don't you think he can bear your lesser burden with you? Surely he can. So give it to him. Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Chapter 4, verse 19, And trust your soul the Lord, the faithful creator in doing right. Do what Jesus did. Chapter 2, verse 22, entrust yourself to Him who judges righteously. There'll be a day you stand before Him that all the injustice inflicted upon you by your unbelieving husband or disobedient husband will all be made right. Trust in that day. He will heal you. He will help you. He will trust you.
That's what women in these circumstances need. And I just hope that other women who rub shoulders with that would just be talking that way. Right? Focus it back upon Christ. Right? Encourage Him. Encourage Him. Chapter 3, verse 14. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. You're walking righteously and you're suffering, but listen, you're blessed. I mean, so you're not getting blessings now, but you're blessed in the sight of God because God looks down upon your behavior and delights in it. Or chapter 4, verse 13, it would be a good verse. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. Look, there's a reward ahead and focus your mind on the reward. So rejoice now because the reward that's coming. And verse 14, even if your husband is speaking down on you because you're a Christian, makes fun of you. Chapter 4, verse 14. If you revile for the name of Christ, you're blessed again. Why? Because the Spirit of glory of God rests upon you. Because at least you're, you're standing faithful as a Christian. And God's hand of blessing is upon you. Encourage them in chapter 4, verse 16. If anyone suffers a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. You know, people as Christians will suffer and you're suffering in your home. So, so be encouraged in this. And, and there is a future reward. And and there is something that can be looked forward to. It says in Hebrews chapter 11 that Moses chose rather to endure the reproach of Christ than to endure the greater riches of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking to the reward. And it's the reward that will help women in these circumstances. So I encourage you women, your, your sufferings for the cross of Christ. Rejoice, be blessed. And then as you have opportunity, pray with her and pray for her. Pray for those people who are in this circumstance. In fact, I just want to end right now with a specific prayer for those women who are in this circumstance. Because I know there's some in this room even. And maybe there's some in this room I don't even know about. Let's pray. Lord, I think about these difficult circumstances to find yourself married to an unbeliever. And would pray for us, pray for the single ladies here. They might realize just how how difficult it is that they might pledge themselves to do everything possible so as not to be in this circumstance. But for those in this circumstance, God, I, I pray for your grace upon their lives in this impossible situation. I pray for your strength to help them. I pray that you would be their refuge and strength. I pray that you would come to help in time of need. I pray the gospel would have a mighty work in their hearts, upon their lives. That the gospel would give them the strength and the power to live and walk righteously. And may these women in these situations look to Christ, realizing that He was the example for them. He was the one who will bear their burdens. He is the chief shepherd and guardian of their souls. May these wives be strengthened to walk in a Christ-like way. To trust you with all things. I pray that Jesus would be their strength. And I pray for their husbands. Some of whom perhaps even are home. Right now. I, I pray for them. God, I pray that, that they would so see the truth lived out. 
the lives of their wives, they might turn from their sin and follow You. I pray this, that years go on, they'd realize the, the pain and suffering they're inflicting upon their wives because of their own sin, because of their own lack of humility, their own desire to repent. And I pray, Lord, that You would use their behavior Lord, to lead them to repent and follow You. I would love to see a testimony here at Rock Valley Bible Church of hearing a man stand in front of the church and just say, my, my wife over the years has walked righteously and I have not. And I have come to see her ways are best and I repent of my sins and trust in Christ. What a wonderful thing it would be for us to see that worked out in flesh. So I pray, Lord, You do Your mighty work and cause these men to, to turn.